NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, once again, this is the fucking pilot in the can with another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. And this one, for me especially, is a very special edition of the podcast. I got somebody I've been wanting to pick his brain for more years than I can count. So tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Ray Farrell, and I'm a recovering DZO. Oh, my God. Ray fucking Farrell. Oh, my God. Do you have any idea how many people right now are just sitting at the edge of their seats right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, some may be interested. Some may be pissed off. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that means we did it right, right? Yeah. So recovering DZO, you're officially retired. You don't run a drop zone anymore. Nope, I uh, I got out of it um, in 2017, January 2017. I sold the business, and uh, 
I've moved to the Florida Keys where I'm enjoying life, doing a lot of scuba diving, still still actively skydiving and staying busy. Uh, I'm semi-retired, I should say, because I have five turboprop airplanes that we still lease out for skydiving. <laughs> of course. So that keeps us a little bit busy. Yeah, man, I bet it does. So that's, uh, well, actually, before we get way ahead of ourselves, let's back up a little bit. So you, you've been in skydiving for a long damn time. Um, Ray Farrell was a very common name when I started, at least uh, on the West Coast. Um, but how did your skydiving career start? Where'd you begin? Where was that first jump? And why did you make that first jump? My first skydive was in 1976 in North Carolina, Lewisburg, North Carolina. Uh, Franklin County Sport Parachute Center, which was Paul Fair's place. And um, I had always been infatuated with heights. I always thought jumping out of an airplane would be a cool thing to do once in your life. And um, But before I started skydiving, I was down at um, Jockey's Ridge, North Carolina, where Wright Brothers flew. Mm. And um, driving down the road, I saw a hang glider. And Jockey's Ridge is a 13-story high sand dune probably the safest place in the world to try to fly. <laughs> and that's where the Wright brothers flew and they were flying hang gliders and I stopped. They gave introductory lessons and, um, I took an introductory lesson. Nice. Went home, went home and bought a, uh, homemade tie dyed, <laughs> orange tie dyed sail hang glider. <laughs> and, uh, that that's another whole story. It turns out it was I didn't know what I was doing or buying. And I just went back straight up back to Jockey's Ridge like I knew what I was doing, put it together, took off, and started going up and kept going up. Couldn't <laughs> couldn't pull the bar far enough forward to get it to go down. Turns out the hang glider was built for towing. Oh <laughs> oh man! <laughs> so I kept going up until I flipped upside down and came crashing back down. Fortunately, I landed on top of another guy's hang glider, which probably saved my life. But it bit the shut of his hang glider. So, yeah. So I had to pay for the damage and put my tail between my legs and go back home. That's a hell of a way to start your uh, your aviation career. <laughs> it was my aviation career. So I, uh, I bought a set of plans and took this thing apart and started all over and built a new one. And I was in the hang glider for several years before I made my first skydive. And um, same old story everybody tells you probably – I had a bunch of friends I'd gotten together, so we were going to go make a jump because if you had six or more, you got a discount. Mm. Took six months to put it together. The day we were supposed to go, every one of them had a reason not to go. <laughs> so I went by myself and uh, went through the training. Um, it was windy. It was March in North Carolina. It was windy season. Had to go back three weeks in a row before I finally got to make my first jump. And as soon as I made the first jump, I uh, I landed, bought the next, bought the uh, student package, and wow. never stopped. Wow! Now that was all. Uh, I'm assuming that was all static line. Oh yeah, static line, military surplus gear. Uh, it was back in the day when the worst gear on the drop zone was the student gear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what was uh, what was the old T-shirt that was around for a while? I remember when uh, sex was safe and skydiving was dangerous. That's right. Yeah, it was back then. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty interesting, but it was also my first airplane ride. I had never been in an airplane before I made my first skydive. No shit. Yeah. So wow, you know, I think in 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 twenty something years now of of uh, flying people and and taking jumpers, I think I've had maybe three or four people that had never been in a plane before before they jumped. I mean, how was that? That must have been just bizarre. 
Well, I was always infatuated with heights as a kid. I grew up in the country and was I spent my year, my childhood swinging through the treetops. Uh, Tarzan was my hero. Mm. And um, I was just jazzed. I was so busy wanting to look out the out the door. I'll never forget the instructor kept was right in my face talking to me the whole time. And I was just thinking, let me look out of the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted to enjoy the view. Yeah, so when they opened the door, I was I was uh, you know pumped up on adrenaline. I, as soon as they opened the door, I started climbing out, and he grabbed me and says, "Wait a minute, I got a spot." Oh, <laughs> so uh, I was good to go, man. And and uh, you know it was it was the old military surplus gear, a T twenty eight and uh, main canopy. And when I got out there on a wing strut, you know it was the, you know all the the wind and the speed, and and then when I let go and the canopy opened. People in these modern skydivers don't know this feeling, but when you're hanging in the air under a big round canopy, it is the most quiet, peaceful thing on earth. I bet. No, no, it's amazing. And so my jump was right at sunset. I went back during the week to finally get a day that was not windy. My jump was right at sunset, and there was a full moon on one side of the sky and a sunset on the other side of the sky. And I thought I was in the middle of heaven. It was just incredible. That's kind of the recipe to grab somebody by the balls for sure. I mean, you're kind of stuck at that point. (laughs) Yep, yep. It was pretty amazing. So, like I said, uh, uh, I hit the ground, went up, paid for the package, and um, the the adventure began. So, now, when you were doing this, uh, how old were you when you made that first jump? Uh, I had... I think I was 20, 23, I think okay. 23 years old. All right. So yep. um, were you were you in school at the time? Were you with family? Were you on your own doing your own thing? I mean, was this oh, a... I, no, I, I, had, I left home when I was 16 and um, floundered around trying to figure out what to do myself. I was in my third year of college. I had taken it. Well, I, I, I was... I, after I did one semester my third year, I think it was, and then I... I had been working and going to school since I was 16, and I decided I was going to stop college, work full-time for a year or two, save up my money, and go back to school and finish. Hmm. And um, <clears throat> I started skydiving instead. Then you made that fucking <laughs> jump, yeah. Well, before before you made that jump, what were you going to be when you grew up? I was an engineering student. Okay. And uh, So I was a civil engineering student, and... Um, you know, I had done a lot of work in the construction trade, and I had all kinds of little side businesses. I, I used to do custom van interiors. Uh, I had a little tiny contracting company that we built billboard signs, hmm. which I kind of hated because I thought they were ugly as hell. But, sure. You know. Well, you're, so I you're did en- a lot of things like that. Your engineering would have served you well as you got older, too, and we'll, we'll definitely get into that because I know personally how much you, you uh, put that engineering knowledge to use later in life, for sure. Um, yeah, I like to say I'm a parachute engineer. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, well, speaking of, so you, you, you make your first jump and you decide, fuck it, that's it, and, and now the college money you're saving ends up going into nylon and, and uh, jump tickets. When yep, did you start? Yep. Uh, um, obviously, you went full bore right from then. But how did you start working in the sport? Was you, what was the first gig in skydiving for you? Well, I was uh, in Franklin County. I met uh, was at the time was the kind of the the uh, most RW progressive skydiving center on the on the East Coast. Okay, Pope Valley on the West Coast, and and Franklin County had a lot going on. 
the Wallace brothers uh, was called the Dirt Divers, um, and they all worked at a company called Steinthal Parachute Company in Roxboro, North Carolina. Okay. And a group of those guys, they were called the Roxboro Eight. All of those were those guys was the management team were moving to California because Security Parachute Company had been bought out by GQ Security of GQ of uh, GQ Parachutes of England. Okay. And so the management team was going out to California that included the, the Dave and Bungie Wallace and a bunch of several other guys. And, uh, they suggested I come with them. And I said, I had never been West of the Mississippi. <laughs> and I said, you guys are crazy. California is full of, uh, it's going to fall in the, in the ocean and, and it's full of crazy people and nuts. <laughs> and, uh, throughout that summer, they kept, Agging me on, they they were leaving later, uh, or that actually through the, throughout that winter, uh, and so in April of 1978, yeah, um, I decided what the hell. So I had a yard sale, sold everything I had except for a motorcycle but and nice. uh, a chest of drawers full of all the clothes I had. We got a 24-foot U-Haul truck, and Bunchy Wallace and I drove across country. Oh, to, man. Uh, to go to work. And, and I went to work for this parachute company for $100 a week before taxes. <laughs> Holy Jesus Christ. So you were, at the time, the epitome of a country boy. Never been yeah, yeah, in yeah. never been in an airplane before, never been west of the Mississippi before. Hung on, I'm guessing that accent of yours was a shitload thicker back then. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> and, uh, and you hopped into a U-Haul and drove to fucking California for a hundred dollars a week. Yep. Well, I didn't have a job when I left. I, the, the the parachute company decided to hire me once I got there. And um, but I like I said, I had an engineering background and a drafting background. So, but I wanted to. I did it because I wanted to learn everything I could learn about the skydiving business and or the the, the equipment. Sure. And, so. It worked out really well because I worked with a guy named Dick Warren, who was the parachute doctor, and he was originally from Steinthal as well. He was an older gentleman, but a super guy mm. and smart as hell. And he was actually contracted by Paraflight back in the day when, when Paraflight first started building Ram Air Canopies mm. um, because every Ram Air Canopy that was built had built-in turns. Really? And um, yeah, and he—he's the one that figured out why that was happening. And um, I don't want to get into too much boring details, but the bottom line is, fabric has a weave. And back in those days, they didn't have tolerances with that where that weave went. Mm. So you would have fabric, and if you look closely at the ripstop fabric, it looked like uh, uh, all the lines were at an angle. Okay. So when you put it all together in panels on the canopy, those lines would make it turn into a parallelogram instead of a rectangle. Oh, wow. Okay. And it would turn. So he discovered what was going on, and he would mark the high side, high side of the fabric and flip the fabric back and forth as you put it, the parachute together. So it made a herringbone weave sure. across the canopy. Okay, that and makes sense. And it made sense. the canopy fly straight. Wow. So... Pretty, pretty unique stuff. So I learned a lot of stuff there, and I, you know, I got my rigorous ticket there, and and then I only got my master parachute rigorous ticket. And I started out in the, um, they in the engineering department. So I was working on both canopy and container designs, mm. 
and um, it was a great gig. It was good fun. I wasn't making much money, so at Pope Valley on the weekends, I was a short order cook in the restaurant at Pope Valley Rest uh, Drop Zone. Oh wow! And I ran the, I, I worked in the bar on, on Friday and Saturday night. And I was a shorter cook on Saturday and Sunday morning. <laughs> I'm really trying to picture that. <laughs> and uh, the good news back then, because I was a good old Southern boy, I, I had I didn't drink and uh, didn't take recreational stuff. Sure. And so. All of my money went into skydiving and peanut butter and honey sandwiches. <laughs> man, oh man, that must have been—I uh, suppose maybe because because uh, of the southern upbringing and such. But I can't imagine being in the seven or in the in California in the mid seventies when the hippies are just—it's just starting to fade out. The sixties is just over. That place must have been crazy. Oh, it was. It was definitely crazy. And but I mean, I'm, I, I I didn't grow up. Uh, too much as a church boy. I mean, I, I hung out with the typical rabbarels of sure. school. Sure. And so, although I didn't do drink or do drugs, I certainly had was amongst it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, point, my friends really enjoyed me being around because they knew they could trust me. Which but, is awesome. Yeah. But, uh, of course, skydivers changed everything and started drinking. <laughs> right, yeah, that does happen, doesn't it? They fucking did yeah. that to me as well because I never drank either until I ended up out in, in Cross Keys and, and ended up jumping with a bunch of Brits that were offended that I wouldn't drink with them. And, and now I can drink with the best of them, bastards. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, man, that, that's quite a, a big deal to trek all the way across the United States for an unknown, especially when you just got started in the sport. and, and uh, But to find yourself, find your feet in that way and to start learning that early on must have been super cool especially looking back at it yeah Pope Valley was an amazing place it was it was definitely the mecca of of uh, leading technology leading edge skydiving going on at the time I got there I had 140 jumps I thought I'd never get on a load again because it was I was amongst sky gods sure. and um, there's a fellow named Scratch Garrison who is an icon in the sport from back those days as well. And he was the most, he was doing three dimensional skydives before anybody ever knew what word free fly was mm. long. This was in the seventies. Right. And, and he was doing all kinds of permutation skydives where you, where it was constant flow moving through a formations and, just an amazing stuff. So I started making a lot of skydives with him and his great group of people, and uh, it was it was was learning and fast forward. It was really amazing. Oh, which is so, fantastic. So it was, um, I'm, you know, and this was the early days of Rammer canopies, and so I came up in an era of skydiving, which was really moving from the old military style and accuracy discipline to the RW sure. and, and formation skydiving or RW was, was the hippies of the skydiving community. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was, it was a great place to be at that time for sure. For sure. Well, it's funny too. Cause uh, I mean, I know a few of the, the older jumpers that I'm good friends with uh, have similar stories and they started on the rounds and transitioned into the, into the Ram air stuff. But did you ever think back then that it would end up where it is now? Not really, but on the other hand, one of the most amazing things about skydiving, which I've always said, is that, I mean, I've done a lot of sports and a lot of things, and with hang gliding, for example, 
in the early days, there was a lot of people we used to call sled riders, and they would have the fanciest, nicest equipment. They'd be on the top of the hill. They'd wait till the end of the day when it was nice and calm winds, and they'd launch and slide down the hill. <laughs> uh, but they looked good, you know. Great. And with, sky, with skydiving, you can have the best gear in the world and it look good going to the airplane, but there's no there's no bullshit in your way out of it when you're in the doorway. No, there isn't. That was yeah, actually – that was kind of one of the cool things about when I came up in skydiving, and you'll remember this as well because you were in the thick of things, is that at one point, I think it was in the mid-'90s and early-2000s, uh, you knew it was a good skydiver. The grungier his rig was and the nastier his jumpsuit was, chances were the better the skydiver was. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you can't bullshit your way through skydiving. But the, but the great thing about skydiving is that it's constantly evolving. Mm. Uh you know, you can be and like for today's, you know, uh, we, I mean, um, wind tunnels have, have made huge advances in, in free flying oh, and skydiving period. It's amazing. So you can get as good as you can possibly be on your belly. You can flip upside down and start over. Yep. And I always said, you know, it's really, it really sucks to be, have 6,000 skydives and be a neophyte. Right. Right. <laughs> Which is what I am when I try to get on my back and stay there. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, you know, it's, it's funny. It's the same thing with me is, is, you know, I just, uh, I rolled through 11,000 jumps and I've got people with a couple hundred jumps that can outfly me without even thinking about it because they've got a shitload of time in the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. The so it's, it's, that's, what's great about it. And certainly the parachute equipment has advanced. To the point where, you know, we we're always going to find a way to kill ourselves oh, because yeah. the parachute gear is so, parachute gear is so reliable now. Um, and so, let's, to to answer your question, I'm not totally surprised because the evolution of skydiving continues to blow me away. Sure, with new stuff. You know, I, I guess for me, it's it, uh, I'm not shocked at the uh, uh, the evolution of the flying nearly as much as I am the technology with the equipment because I really don't have a background in that like you do. Um, but I mean, I remember when stilettos came out, everybody thought there's no way there will ever be a better wing than this canopy, and that was when you know you had to supposedly prove you had 500 jumps to even be able to buy one of these things, and and right, it right. was the most badass canopy ever. And now students are practically jumping stilettos <laughs> well yeah and it's the same thing when i when i had been flying hang gliders and then i'm do, going through my student training with these big old fat round canopies and the worst gear in the world and i'm watching these guys with new ram airs coming in and doing stand-up landings and i go that flies like a hang glider that's what i gotta have right and back then you said they said you gotta have 200 jumps before you can buy a ram air can or jump a ram air canopy <laughs> so I said, the hell with that, and uh, I went and found myself a used parasled. So anybody, you guys out there that don't know anything about parasleds, it's a, uh, it's an amazing canopy. It was, uh, it had a split tail, so it was like wing warping. Huh. And uh, anyway, that was my first Ram Air canopy. And then it, when I was working at Security Parachute Company, you know, we came out with a unit which was the first lightweight seven-cell canopy. Uh, and then we came out with the X210, which was 210 square foot lightweight seven cell canopy and everybody said that canopy is too fast it's too dangerous you guys can't sell that <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine and, if they were able to if you had a time machine and you could just go back on a saturday to any one of these drop zones with a, a leia or a velocity or a petra yeah, oh yeah, my yeah, god yeah yeah 
but the but the transition time, you know, I mean, probably if the cannabis that are available today were available when I was twenty, I might not be here today. Yeah, because I mean, I did I spent a great part of my time at Security Parachute Company in the engineering department and also running test programs. Mm. So I did a lot of test jumps and like, for example, with the X210, it was spin faster than anything you'd ever had. And <laughs> I spun myself into the ground with it, just horsing around too low to the ground. Oh. And I came out my last turn and it was like, I've just realized I've screwed the pooch. I got an airplane in front of me or a tarmac to hit on one or the other. Oh. So I took the tarmac yep. and um, cracked both of my heels. But I got up and walked away. You you can't do that today. No, no. <laughs> you know, uh, so that's the difference. I mean, the the gear is so fast and so but so reliable and safe if you drive it properly. Yeah, I mean, today it's it's no longer a matter of the equipment failing; it's the training failing. Um, yeah, it's. Right. I, I think that's probably the biggest thing that uh, a lot of people have talked about, and I've had some of the the hardcore uh, uh, swoop champions in here to talk to me, and and it's all boiled down to training and, and moving at you know a safe pace, because at the end of the day, even an extremely accomplished skydiver can go out and kill themselves if they're just a little bit off one day. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Or if you have a bad spot and you're in a tight spot, you know, I mean, you you don't have a real good way to land. No. Well, it's like so, that. Uh, it's like but, that video but, that came out uh, of the kid that uh, had himself a bad spot over a city and ended up slamming into the side of a house because there was nowhere else to go. Yeah, <laughs> fuck. Yeah, you exactly. Know? What do you do? So that that's that's a, the the equipment has come so far so fast, but a lot of times, well, most times, the training has not kept up with yeah. the equipment. The equipment comes first. And then you got to figure out how to stop killing yourself with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and that seems to be the the general trend. Although I think this time around, with the new wave of canopies, when stuff like the Petra came out, um, the community had already figured out. All right, these parachutes are going to kill a lot of fucking people uh, if yeah. if we fly them like the stiletto. Because when the stiletto came out in the Batwing, uh, in the, those canopies, the first swoopable canopies came out. Nobody really knew what they were getting themselves yep. into, you know? Um, right. So uh, I think now at least the community knows, all right, this wing is even more high performance than what was the end-all be-all, the velocity, uh, and now they're on wings that make the velocity look like a student canopy, uh, you know, and there's just no room for error. So I I think the training for once actually kept up with the, the danger of it. Well, it, it it's, cal- it's caught up with the danger of it. It didn't keep up with it to start with. No. But it's caught up with it, and that's that's a great thing. And like at Scott Ants, we we tried really hard at, at my DZ that safety needs to be a part of the culture, mm. not an afterthought. Yeah. And so we we constantly, as a community, policed ourselves. When we saw someone do something erratic or stupid under canopy, uh, they got canceled. Sure. And uh, and if they didn't clean their act up, we we would condemn them to jumping and landing in the student field <laughs> until they got their ducks in a row. Yep. So, so yeah, but the community policing works really well is also, and it's, it, it helps reinforce the safety culture of it. Now there's sure. some places obviously that didn't do that, Sure. but, um, but that's, 
the training has called up and it's the, the training is really good. In fact, we ran one of the canopy courses by what is the flight one guy group. Yep. yep. We ran their canopy courses at our DZ every year for the last several years while I was there. And, um, I'll never forget. I had a guy with 4,000 skydives that took their 101 course. Yep. And he told me 4,000 skydives and I'm finally learning how to fly a canopy. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, but that's how good the training was as well. They, those guys do a great job. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it needs to be because, uh, well, I mean, you remember when I broke my fucking tailbone, I'd spent maybe six months off uh, my canopy because I was too busy flying and went out and, and uh, whipped a hook turn like I'd been on it the day before and had lost the feel for the canopy, stalled it out and, and broke my tailbone. And that, yeah. and that yeah. was just, that, that should have been a normal landing. I just lost a feel for it. Well, when you were flying a, a PD-190, yeah, you can kill yourself on a PD-190, but you're generally not going to lose the feel for it, you know? Right. So yeah. it's definitely changed. And and especially in the way that uh, things were done out in Skydance, it wasn't, uh, oh, you got to watch out for that one person that's going to get you in trouble if you do something stupid, because everybody was that person. And that was a really amazing way to be. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it helped. I think it helped a lot. Um, so we wound up with... Uh, a, a pretty good, I mean, everybody, sometimes they didn't appreciate it at the moment they were being talked to, but no, nobody does in, in the big picture. They, uh, everybody got it. Oh, and, sure. uh, so we all looked out for each other and it worked out really well that way. So now, uh, speaking of Skydance, how did that come about? Cause you, you end up in Pope Valley and you're, you're a short order cook and, and designing <laughs> and doing test jumps and all that stuff. But you ended up transitioning into, uh, owning and operating, um, probably one of the longest lived mid-size drop zones in the u.s uh how, so how did that start well we uh after pope valley was sold and got and got shut down um everybody scattered and um so we were going to different places um i was still working at security parachute company um and then the the company that had bought them out um, it was uh, GQ of England. They decided to shut down the operation and move all the all the product they wanted to keep to back to their facilities in England. Mm. So I was basically um, like everybody else at Security Parachute Company, kind of out on the street trying to figure out what to do myself. So I started Action Air Parachute Company, which was my little parachute loft. Sure. And um, rented a house in Alameda, California. The bottom floor of the house was my loft and we lived upstairs. And then I was involved in the early, early days of, of tandem jumping. Mm. Uh, in fact, I had the first tandem rig west of the Mississippi. <laughs> I had the only, only tandem gear uh, program in California to start with. So from the very beginning, I was involved in a I was the I, I got I was in the first group of people that got their tandem instructor or examiner ratings, and so I was on a, a tandem program, and um, I had gone to uh, to the only big drop zone in Northern California, which was Lodi at the time, <laughs> and and told Bill I wanted to uh, run a tandem operation there, and. Um, he said, okay. So I brought my trailer out, ran my own operation separate from his operation, but I had to pay him for the airplane seats. And, um, he would make me buy the whole 182 load and, uh, for one tandem at a time. And in the weekend I'd pay him off in cash. And, um, 
that's how I, we got started. Wow. And after, after a very short time, maybe two months, three months, he decided uh, that um, I had offered the training to be due to two tandems and would leave my gear there during the week for him to use during the week because I was running a weekend program. Mm. And um, <clears throat> he said, okay. And uh, I said, well, when do you want to do the training? He goes, I'm not going to ride in front of that thing. I said, well, I'm not going to give you a tandem rating then. <laughs> so he didn't get his tandem rating. Um, so he said, we can't do tandems anymore. He said he read the waiver. Back then we were under a waiver, you know, for what, 10 or 15 years yeah, under a waiver. Long time. FAA. Yeah, so he said, he read the waiver, and he said, you can't charge to do tandems, and you can't charge for the airplane ride to do tandems. So you can't do tandems here. And I said, okay. And so I moved my operation to Antioch Parachute Center right? Uh, with, the, with the Jones brothers and um, started doing them there. Well, that wasn't good enough. Bill wrote a letter to the western region of the FAA and got a legal interpretation from the FAA saying exactly the same thing that you couldn't charge for tandems and you couldn't charge for airplane ride do tandems because it was experimental Ugh. but so that's kind of the same way it is for flying experimental aircraft like a home-built airplane like a pit special sure right you can't charge somebody to fly in a pit special from point a to point b but you can charge them for aerobatic training all right so that was the way that it was supposed to be with it, with skydiving. But uh, Dawes got a, a very narrow interpretation of the rule, so we, we were basically grounded. But I started the Tandem Sport Parachute Jumpers Association hmm. and dedicated to the advancement of skydiving training through tandem parachute jumps. Nice. And so I made up a form. It was a beautiful little thing. <laughs> Back in the day, it was. Uh, it looks pretty silly now, but anyway, I made up a form. I had the Tandem Sport Parachute Jumpers Association. It cost you, back then, it would cost you $125 to join the association. <laughs> and as a member of the association, you got to make one free tandem skydive. It's <laughs> genius. So I, I was only out of business for a day before I was back in business. Oh, and so, and then the other thing that I did was I, I made up a form letter to the FAA you know, basically so that everybody made a tandem jump. I gave them the letter at the end with their certificate. I said, if you enjoyed this, if you thought it was valuable, please send it, sign this letter and send it to the FAA. <laughs> and, and so most of my tandem students wrote their own letters versus signing mine. Right. So that summer, the FAA off, legal office got inundated with letters <laughs> from my tandem, my tandem association. <laughs> So it took a, it took about a year before they they changed their rules again, oh. to, so that we could continue doing tandem. That's fucking great. That's so that's sneaky, but that's great. Yeah. So in the end, because because Dawes couldn't kill it, he had to join it. Oh. And that's and that's a whole other story. And I'd really not spend my whole day talking about Bill Dawes. Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> let's not do that. There's way too many skeletons to unbury with that. Uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you, you end up doing all that, but you end up eventually out of Yolo County. Yeah, so what happened was after, of course, after I was doing my stuff at Antioch, the uh, the Jones brothers saw how well the tandem worked, and, and they weren't in favor of the tandem program at all at the time. 
Um, but they saw what I was doing and they saw how well it was working. And of course they wanted their own tandem program. Sure. So it became obvious to me that I needed, uh, my own facility if I was going to keep my own tandem program going. Mm. And I was, I was, uh, good friends with Dan O'Brien and, um, he was working in the construction trade. He wanted to be in the skydiving world full time. And he was actually working part time with me, uh, in my parachute loft, cool. uh, because he was a rigger as well. So we started on a on a hunt to find a f- place to run a tandem program. And so that's, I'll make this as fast as I can because it could go on forever. Sure. My, my, uh, uh, my first wife and I were engaged at the time and we were, we got, we wound up getting married near Yolo County Airport at a private ranch. Hmm. <clears throat> and, um, <clears throat> Then we, the, the ranch was up for sale and we were going to buy this ranch. It had a, it had a, um, 2,500 foot grass strip on it. Oh, wow. And we, and so we, that's where we got married and we had a wedding boogie there. We had two 182s and it was a hell of a party. I bet. At a private ranch. And so we had that in escrow. We were going to buy it. And, um, but at the same time we had been negotiating with Yolo County for almost 18 months. Because Yolo County was our backup plan. Mm. We, we were going to buy this private airstrip and run our drops on there. It, was, it had a house. It had barns. It had facilities. It was a beautiful thing. <clears throat> but first time I ever tried to buy any property, I didn't know basically anything about what I was doing. Sure. And the week before we were supposed to close in escrow, the bank we were working with came back and said, and this is back in the day when farm farm values were so depressed you couldn't borrow money up for a farm mm. and it was a it was an 80 acre parcel and the bank came back to us and said we can only loan money on five acres and the improvements of the property the house uh. and can't loan money on the on the property the rest of the property so we came up thirty thousand bucks short and Back then, thirty thousand could have been thirty million. Sure, I, I wouldn't. I wasn't, wasn't going to come up with thirty thousand. Sure. So we went to the owners and said, "Hey, you got to you got to either carry a second on this property or drop the price, or else we can't be bought." Right. And it had been on the block. It had been on the market for a couple of years at that time. So they told us they had a backup offer, and I figured they were <laughs> jerking my chain. And bottom line is a. The day we were supposed to close escrow, we couldn't close, and um, this developer from Santa Rosa bought it out from under us. Oh, wow. So plan B became plan A, and that's how we wound up getting, finally got a lease on the airport at Yolo County Airport. But County as we airport? started, Yolo County. Yeah. Yolo. You only live once. <laughs> so we were on Yolo County Airport. But we didn't have permission to land on the airport, and we met a farmer that had property across the street from the count from the airport property, and his name was Dwayne Chamberlain. He's a wonderful guy, and we called him Saint Dwayne. <laughs> uh, he said he would let us land on his property. Oh, that's awesome! So we started a skydiving center in February in the middle of uh, a mud pit because <laughs> it was rainy season. Yep, and we trucking people back and forth across the road to where the drop zone itself was, the landing area. Wow. 
but Dwayne was a, he was, he is a great guy. He's still around. Um, <clears throat> he said there was all kinds of people in the county that, that wanted, that told him he ought not let us land there. And the more people said no, we should. He shouldn't do it. The more he wanted to do it, right. so he bec he became a real advocate for us. Oh, that's fantastic! Um, that's how it all got started. Well, and you 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 went with the idea of a twenty five hundred foot grass strip and ended up on one of the largest paved runways in Northern California. Yeah, five thousand feet. It's fucking massive runway. That thing is yeah. huge. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely enormous. Well, it's, I mean, Skydance got to be very, very well known, even though it started out a bit on the rough side, and it ended up with quite a huge uh, base of people um, that ended up doing everything from jumping there to camping there to living there, and that place got pretty out of control. It was fun. Yeah, it, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was moderately out of control. We tried to keep a thumb on it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you said uh, before we got started that the first ten years were a bit rough. Um, you know, trying to to make it all work, and and uh, um, then uh, you kind of had to get down to business. And uh, I didn't come out there until two thousand and two thousand and four is when you and I first met. Um, right, right. so it was already pretty well established and had a great crew of people and you were running the pac 750 and all that stuff. And actually I want to ask you about that as well. Uh, cause there's more than a few pilots listening. You were instrumental in the start of the pac 750. Yeah. Yeah. We start we started Scott Anson in, in 1987, Dan O'Brien and I did. And, um, so we had, and my job was to, was to run the student training program and the aircraft mm. and Dan was going to be the general manager. He, uh, he was an international competitor. I had competed, um, at the nationals a few times, but he was on part of mirror image was the world champion eight way team mm. that won the world championships three times. So he was going to be the drop zone manager and he was going to recruit people to come here to train. And we did a really good job with that. Um, we, uh, as you probably remember, we had the Olympic skydiving team train at our center yep. for two, two weeks before we went to Korea in 1988 yep. for the Olympics. Uh, we had international teams. We had the English team, the Norway team, uh, the Norwegians, uh, the Belgians. It was a great time. We had people from all over the world coming there. We had uh, a group of Indonesians come from from your second home to uh, yeah, our nice. place for a whole, for a whole summer. Um, so that was all happening. And, um, the airplane thing was, we were the first people to buy a King air for skydiving. Okay. And was also the first to realize how bad an idea it was because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was a young pilot, uh, at the time I, I didn't have a commercial ticket. So I hired, we hired, I hired pilots sent to fly, but. I would check out somebody in a 182 and they couldn't fly 182 and I'd go, how could this guy have a commercial ticket? Right. So I went and got my commercial ticket and I got to tell you, it was the easiest thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> and the first thing I thought when I walked out of there was who the fuck's been flying my airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> so we got, we, we got a lot more serious about pilot training and I, and I was really lucky because I had people like Mike Guinness who was an airline pilot and a long time jump pilot and Craig Wolf who same same situation except he flies corporate jets he flies the biggest global expenses there are now for mm. some some giant corporation but those are the guys that were my mentors and that they were flying my King Airs and checking out our pilots mm. 
Um, but so after a year of flying, the first year of flying to King Air, everything's great. People loved it. It was fast as hell. It was fun to fly. But year two, the hot sections were due. The five-year items were due. Mm-hmm. So all the money you think you made the year before, Gone. you pour right back into it to keep the airplane alive. Mm. And so after a few years of flying King Airs, it was like, it's a money pit. Sure. And so the bane of our industry has been poorly trained pilots and poorly maintained airplanes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I wanted out from under that. And those two items, as we have learned over the years, is a deadly combination in King Air B-90s or, oh. or King Air 90s. Damn right. So, um, so we've our, our King Air... You know, we, we flew it for several years, and then all the items were due again. The airplane probably wasn't worth a hundred grand in the condition it was in. Hmm. We put it, we put it on, literally stuck it on a set of hay bales, and parted it out and made one hundred eighty thousand bucks off of it the first summer. Oh, wow! <laughs> so everybody flying King Airs, part them out, get out from under them. <laughs> yep. that's the best thing we can do. So anyway, my, my, the, the A&P Phil Esdale at Davis Air Repair that did all the maintenance on our aircraft, uh, him and I were always talking about a better platform for skydiving. Mm. We need a better plane. Uh, but he was a Kiwi, and he knew about the Cresco, which was a um, crop-dusting airplane in New Zealand. Yeah. It had a 6-34 in front of it. Well, down in New Zealand, they were taking the, the hopper out of this crop-dusting airplane because then the the Cresco had the hopper behind the pilot where all, all the ag planes in the United States, the hoppers up in front. Sure. They were pulling the hopper out of this airplane and putting eight jumpers in it and using it for skydiving. <laughs> and so we talked about making a larger version of that airplane and we put together the numbers. We did some market research that summer. Uh, we came up with how many turbine airplanes were being flown in the United States have approximately how many hours are being flown, how many number of jumps. Mm. So we, we put together a whole thing of all the airplanes being used for skydiving and, and, and then focused on the turbines. Uh, we took the market research. We went to New Zealand. We managed, we're just a couple of, you know, yahoos. Right. But we managed to get an audience with the president of the company of Pacific Aerospace. <laughs> and we did our spiel. Um, and we sold them on the idea. We said, listen, if you if you build a large version of this airplane and build it specifically for the skydiving industry, and at that time, the skydiving industry had exploded in New Zealand, as you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, tur- the, the tandem thing was incredible. It was gigantic. Oh, yeah. In fact, the skydiving thing is so successful in New Zealand, their centennial $10 bill has a little tandem on the top corner of the bill. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's very cool. So anyway, we convinced them. This was in 19, uh, no, 2000, mm. the year 2000. That was the same year I bought my first caravan. So I got out from under the, the King Airs and was running caravans. And um, so we convinced them this is a project worth doing because if you build this airplane that we want, you'll also have a really good utility aircraft. For sure. So they signed off on the idea. We made a deal. We came home. We started Utility Aircraft Corporation, uh, and that's how it got started. And 
what's kind of amazing is that we went from idea to a certified airplane in four years. Which is crazy. It was amazing. No one can get anywhere near that these days. No. Hell, it takes them four years just to get it down on paper. Right. So, in 2014, we brought the first caravan over. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm the first pack. Sure. The P750 For sure. XL. And uh, that's how it all started. So, it's an amazing airplane, but uh, folks like me, middle-aged to old-aged, fat, <laughs> relative workers, don't think it's the best airplane in the world. <laughs> it's right. You know, I'll tell you what, it's uh, hands down, in my opinion, it's the best tandem aircraft on the planet. Um, I, I don't think, to, at least uh, coming from a pilot's perspective, I don't think there's an easier plane to load. And I don't think as a tandem instructor, there's an easier plane to hook up and exit out of than the pack. Um, it was yeah. just a wonderful aircraft. Funny thing is, I the first time I ever saw it, I saw a picture of your bird. Um, it was a 750DZ with that crazy paint job. And I yeah. saw a picture of it in Parachutist Magazine and before I was flying anything like it. And I went, that's the ugliest fucking thing I've ever seen. And then I came out and started working for you and started flying it and went, that's the most beautiful aircraft I've ever laid my eyes on. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted the airplane to be loud and stand up. Oh, it did. Stand out. I wanted to make sure that everybody that saw it or, or everybody that was around saw it and it got their attention. And that was their idea before. And people either loved that paint job or they hated it. I loved it. Oh, yeah. I thought it was awesome. No, so did I. I, mean, I spent enough time waxing that damn thing. I fell in love with it. That's for damn sure. <laughs> so yeah, so we, took, we took delivery of it in uh, 2014. And, you know, the tragic story, which I'll glaze over real quickly, was the first one didn't make it across the Pacific. Yeah, it's still sitting about 100 miles off the coast, isn't it? Oh, it's drifted out somewhere. Who knows where it's at now? It was about 250 miles short. Oh. But uh, it's a really tragic story, but the, the, the ferry pilot just screwed the pooch. Yeah. He didn't monitor his fuel burn. Turns out he didn't have his fuel caps on properly, and he was venting fuel overboard all night long. So he came up with three hours worth of fuel for a five-hour flight. <sighs> so that's, how, that's the reason it was not the airplane. It was a real kick in the teeth for us. First airplane coming over, but we had ferried one over before. The prototype had we'd ferried over and done testing at the National Test Center up in Mojave. Mm. Did all did all the spin tests and all the other stuff, and then ferried it back to, back to uh, New Zealand. Wow. So it was tanked up properly, had the right kind of fuel in it, and made it no problem. So after that, I ferried several of them over myself, and Hawaii to, to United States is the longest leg over water in the world. Yeah. And so it's a, in the pack, it was a 14 and a half hour flight. We took off with 18 hours of fuel on board. Man. Um, but anyway, it, it went down because of pilot error, which is a tragic thing. But um, so then we, that was, that was the day after Christmas was when I was supposed to be taking delivery there. Oh, man. So kind of ruined my Christmas. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, luckily uh, the the second one made it out there, and and it uh... made it, and and we got it there. Uh, we got it there a week before the World Freefall Convention. <laughs> awesome. So it we made one jump out of it out of our skydiving center, just well because we had to you know we had to do all the certification stuff sure. and get it off the NC register and uh, FAA register and blah blah blah, but. We made one skydive out of our at our drop zone out of it, so we can say we made the first jump in the United States with it. And then I ferried it to uh, 
um, the World Freefall Convention. <laughs> and uh, it was so new, it still had bubble wrap on the handrails. <laughs> That's awesome. And and so there we are at the Freefall Convention. You know, we're there, we're there trying to convince people to jump out of our little airplane when there's casas and sky vans and everything else along on the on the flight line. But ours was a brand-new airplane, and people wanted to jump out of brand-new airplanes. Sure. Uh, first brand-new airplane, airplane ever designed and built for skydiving. Yep. Uh, and, and, and only the second new airplane in the United States that ever ever been bought, built, I mean, bought brand-new for skydiving. Sure. The first one was, was Cowboy's Caravan some years before. Yeah. Anyway, the weather turned bad. There was a 4,000-foot cloud layer that just hung there. And there were, you know, 2,000 people there with money in their pockets, jump tickets in their hands, wanting to meet skydives. Sure. So we said, two skydives for the price of one, hop and pops. <laughs> and we fired up our, car- our, our pack, and we flew, the first day we flew, we flew 43 loads. <laughs> That's awesome. Because, as you know how that airplane is on takeoff. Oh, yeah. From takeoff. Jump run was about a minute and a half, <laughs> and it was about thirty seconds to land. So we were just cranking and turning and cranking and turning. And my my guys that were doing the manifest, um, they said we've only got three people. I said send them out, send them out. It didn't matter how many we had. We were just shooting straight up in the sky, dropping jumpers, and shooting straight back down. Yep. 43 loads at the end of the day i did the math and it's like man i hope it's cloudy the rest of the week (laughs) (laughs) hey keep that shit rolling hell yeah so did that for two days we did 43 loads the first day i think it was and 39 the next day and then the skies finally cleared wow but the other operators couldn't stand it they wanted to get in on the on the on what i was doing so uh mike mullins fired up his king air and offered uh, um uh hopping pops for the same price sure but he wouldn't fly with just two or three people. And that's and, where you uh, had. I would. I, I was flying with with as many as fifteen and as few as three. Sure. And uh, so he'd fly two a couple of loads and then shut down. And then and then Paul Ferry fired up his Casa for high speed flybys. <laughs> so people got in the Casa, running off the tailgate doing one hundred and thirty knots, and uh, but they just couldn't keep it going. Sure. And I could. Which and is- so it, it was. It was pretty amazing. So it was grand fun. It was a great introduction of the airplane to the United States. Oh, hell yeah. Well, and then it, I mean, it's obviously become quite the success, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world. I mean, PAX 750s can be found everywhere. In fact, uh, a very good mutual friend of ours is running one out of Pretoria, South Africa. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're everywhere uh, now. You got to have a shitload of pride in that. I mean, uh, between you and Phil, you guys just decided, we need a new kind of fucking airplane, and now it's one of the most prevalent skydiving aircraft on the planet. Well, yeah, and it's uh, it can't be beat for uh, efficiency, safety, and profitability as a jump plane. Uh, it can't be beat. Well, and I personally don't think it can be beat, as, uh, especially uh, considering it was my first turbine. I, I went from a 182 at your drop zone, and by the way, thanks again for giving me the job, <laughs> straight straight into the PAC 750 at 1,000 hours. And it's I'll, I'll say it now, um, but between you and the PAC 750, uh, the only reason I'm the fucking pilot instead of just a fucking asshole is because I got that job to fly that plane. 
Um, yeah, you know, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. man, that I mean, that plane was an incredible introduction to a turbine. As far as a turbine aircraft goes, they don't get any more user-friendly and simple. It's a stick, so it's fucking fun to fly. The thing, yep, you know, yep. climbs like a bat out of hell when it's moderately loaded and descends. The only way you could make that thing come down faster is if you folded the wings back. Yeah, that's it. That's right. I mean, it just drops yeah. out of the sky. It's just a fantastic plane. And so especially for somebody like me who had that as his first turbine, I mean, wow, what a plane. Yeah, and in, in those days, the other thing that the beauty of the airplane that, that we figured out once we were operating it was, you know, I had a 182, so we'd have one or two tandems. We'd fire up the 182 with two tandems and spend 45 minutes getting altitude right. or, or flying the load. and. In the pack with two tandems, we could fly the load to 13,000 feet and be back on the ground in less than 10 minutes oh, yeah. or 10 minutes at oh, most. I, I don't know how many so, – I can't even count how many so times was, on your load sheets that I would actually end up putting a point one for flight time because it was just prior to clicking over to a point two. That's fucking yeah, fast. And, and and it was cheaper to fly there. And at the end of the first year, I did the math on what it cost me to operate that 182 that year because we weren't using it very much. And by the time you paid for the maintenance and insurance, the average cost per jump out of the 182 was like 25 bucks. <laughs> so it's like we got rid of the 182, and we just flew the pack. And and the other great thing about having the pack there was all the jumpers in Northern California knew that the turbine would be flying yeah. every day. Yeah, they didn't have to worry about jumping out of a 182. Yeah, uh, and it was just that that was another bonus to the airplane we hadn't even considered oh yeah but and back then in the early days of free flying you know hell and if if you saw each other in free fall on your head you were doing good <laughs> so they weren't trying to do mass exits like they're doing 100 ways now in free flying it's incredible sure uh but but back then free flyers had loved the airplane because they knew it was going to fly and they knew it was fast sure. yeah so no. that's but now with the super vans are available that that Texas Turbo Supervan is an amazing conversion. Sure. So all of a sudden you could take a, a, a caravan, which was as slow as a 182 when you loaded up full of jumpers. Uh, now you've got a caravan that flies as fast as the pack. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an amazing machine. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of good aircraft out there now, and I've been lucky to fly uh, a number of different versions of all of them. And it's, it's definitely, uh, I mean, you can pretty much pick an aircraft for the type of operation you want to run now. And, and back then, there were, there, you didn't have those kind of options. So it's super cool. Super cool. Yeah, so, yeah but, you know, I had, I had the, uh, the first Blackhawk in Northern California, yep. the, the Blackhawk Caravan conversion, and, and now I have the Supervans. And I'll just put it this way. I have super vans now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I've been told. Texas super vans. <laughs> that's one of them I haven't flown, but I have been told for sure. Now, I, yeah. I got a couple of questions that I, I, I want to shoot off um, that have nothing to do with airplanes. Were you there when Matthews burned his balls? Oh, on the tower? Yeah. No, I actually was not there. As I've told you before. <laughs> As a TCO, sometimes I left because I had to have plausible deniability. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because we talk and you give me the, the background and your history to everything. And, and you were a bit of a shit stirrer back in the day, even though you weren't drinking and, and doing the party stuff. Um, but when you and I got to know each other, you were were uh, at least famous in the U.S. as being a bit of a hard-ass DZO. And I don't know if you'll remember this, but I came to interview you. Actually, you're the only DZO that actually interviewed me for a job. Usually it was just how many jumps you got yeah you can go 
uh, and you wanted to sit down and have an interview. So I walked in and sit down and you looked at the resume that I had to write up for you. And you saw that I used to work for Michael Hawks. And you asked me, yeah. and I'm sure you remember this, you asked me, oh, you worked for Michael Hawks for two and a half years, so you know how to work for a hard ass. And I don't, <laughs> yeah. and I, I do remember that. Oh yeah. And I had, I gambled cause I'm like, all right, I've heard stories about Ray. I heard he's a tough son of a bitch. So I'm going to have to either handle him with kid gloves or I'm just going to have to go for it. And I decided to go for it. And I looked you in the eyes and I said, if you're twice the prick people say you are, you're still only half the prick he is. <laughs> and you looked at me for a solid five or six seconds, started laughing, shook my hand and said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, yeah, I do remember that. Yep, I do remember yep, that. Yep, uh, and it, it was it, it was a, really the only way I could think of to do it. Because again, you had that reputation of being nope, it's going to be Ray's way or you're fucking done. So I'm like, all right, well, I better figure it out now. And then the the first business meeting that we had with all the staff, you started listing all the the rules um, for the drop zone. And what was the rule about dating? Was it number five? Number, rule number five. Rule yeah. number five. You're not allowed to date the staff, and me not knowing when to keep my fucking mouth shut raises my hand. No, and- no, no, no. Wait a minute. You got it wrong. Not, not. You could date staff. You weren't allowed to extend your relationship beyond that of a professional skydiving instructor with your students. With the students, right, right, right. And so, me being a smartass, in the middle of the meeting, I hold up my hand and go, "Does sex count as dating?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Again, another good one. And it was funny because the thing that I always knew with you was you might look like you were pissed off, but you could see just that little bit of a twinkle going, all right, that was good, but shut the fuck up. (laughs) You could see it more times than I can count. But a lot of shenanigans went on at that drop zone, especially because of the double wide trailer. And for those that have never been to Skydance... Skydance had the main offices and, and the, the drop zone and manifest and the hangar and all that stuff uh, where all the activities were on. But midfield, you had Action Air Parachutes, which is where the loft was. And then you had a double wide trailer that you rented out to the responsible jumpers on the drop zone. But, yeah, but or irresponsible jumpers yeah, on the drop zone. <laughs> man, some stuff went Action on in that was, place. It was, Action Air was at the drop zone, but Flight Suit Company was midfield. That's right. That's right. That's, that, it, that was next to the double. Wire. That's right. Man, some silliness <laughs> got on down there for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, and remember, I lived in the double wide for I think four years yep. before, and you got there when Jim was there. Yep. Yep, yep. I so, uh, well, so it had been it had been uh, kind of party central for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. Jim was living there when I started jumping there, and then of course when I uh, when I brought the Chicagoland Otter out for uh, winters, uh, I spent uh, a few months living in the double wide there and, and got firsthand experience of what it's like <laughs> living in that place. That was yeah. that was pretty interesting as well. I mean, yeah, some of the craziness that that uh, happened was was pretty entertaining or like. And I, I brought this up, I think, talking to, to Jim or somebody else from Skydance. Do you remember the guy that decided to taxi the airplane down the runway when it didn't have wings on it? Oh, yeah, yeah. What the fuck happened with that? He was just going to do an air, uh, uh, a ground taxi, <laughs> a, t- a taxi test, you know, a high-speed taxi test. With no wings. And uh, With no wings, and it didn't work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> without, without a rudder working with along with the wings, you... Uh, it was all vector, no control. I mean, all thrust, no vector. Oh, my God. I remember because I was on descent when that happened, and I watched it happen, and I had to radio to manifest going, um, 
pretty sure a plane with no wings just crashed on the runway <laughs> and and had to go a little long to land past him and all. Oh, man. So out of all that time at Skydance, you guys were operating for well, all the way up until 2017. What was some of the, the best memories you've got of that place? What are some of the worst <laughs> memories of that place? I mean, it was an epic drop zone for quite a while. Still is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the Olympic skydiving team was, was an amazing event. Uh, and for me, it was incredible just to be a small part of it. Mm. And so that was that was great fun. G- going to Korea was a f- my first trip out of the country. Mm. Um, so, Except for I, ha- I had made it to Canada once. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, <clears throat> no, that, that was one of the great events. Uh, having all the, the teams from around the world training there one summer was – epic it was just incredible fun stuff going on and then you know uh mike mitchell started the with, with us started the american boogie yep and so every every american boogie for the first five years were were um epic oh yeah you know we did uh we we lit the field up with uh with the lights that they use for nighttime farming mm. <clears throat> so we had the whole field lit up like a stadium and we made night jumps basically all night long. Yep. And and uh, yeah, flew, that was that was pretty amazing. I flew one of those nights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it was incredible. Oh, yeah. So, so uh, just so many great memories. Uh, all the world records we did, especially with the Halo stuff, mm. we, we had the only skydiver center in the, in the United States that could fly 30,000 feet yep. because we had – I had done the work, and we had the uh, RVSM, which means RVSM equipped airplanes, as you know. Sure. You got to you got to be RVSM approved to fly above twenty eight thousand feet. Yep. Um, so we were the only people that had ever gotten an exemption for that or the waiver, because basically, if you want to do battle with the FAA or do business with the FAA, you just got to know the regs. Because right. if you know the regs, you know more than they do. Sure. So, so we, I filled out all the documentation. I went to the FAA. I said, well, I want to get an RVSM waiver. This can't do it. I said, yes, you can. Here's the regs and here's how it works. So here's how we're going to do it. So basically I taught them how to do it and, uh, they agreed to it. And so we were doing 30,000 foot jumps. Then we were doing world record altitude jumps. And we had, we had my super van to 37,500 feet. Jesus Christ. So, and that's pretty much the ultimate uh the the max altitude limitation because you get you you know the old triangle the triangle is stall speed versus climb speed right and and at a certain at, at a certain altitude that becomes a point <laughs> right. so i used to call it fine on the knife edge you lure it on coordinated you start sliding down the side of it yep so uh, but yeah, we did some pretty great things for about 10 years. We set every, every, almost every wingsuit record there was. Sure. Every one of those flights were epic to me because oh, yeah. I would do just a couple stuff stuff oh yeah so. no and I, I i was lucky enough to, during my tenure there as well to fly a lot of the uh, some of the high altitude stuff and a lot of the events and and uh, i mean you got a whole bunch of cool stuff that happened out there in fact do you remember um mythbusters when they came out that was fantastic oh yeah that was a great time oh, it was. The, the Mythbusters. The, those guys were so much fun to work with half their crew wound up doing tandem jumps with us yep yep i took them we went, <laughs> yeah yeah that's right we went we wound up doing um uh, three different episodes with, with the Mythbusters. Oh, that's cool. 
I did the that one. I did the one to do the Point Break Miss. Actually, you know, it's kind of funny because I've got a bone to pick with you on that. So we did the whole thing. We were sitting stuck in fucking weather for the longest time, and they wanted to do three jumps. They wanted to do the can you fall for ninety seconds from four thousand feet. Uh, so right. to bust that myth, we just threw that the dummy Buster out of the plane with nothing and let him go in. Uh, yeah, ob- twice. Twice, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, we busted that myth as he plowed into the field across from the drop zone. Then we wanted to yep. do, could you talk in free fall? So I took the tandem, and uh, a camera flyer tandem instructor, Dan, jumped out and tried to verbally pass a message to my student. Uh, and then yep. the- Do you remember what the message was? Oh, what was it? I don't offhand. I do. It's, the message was, pull my finger and you'll hear a tuba. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And it was, it was. I think it was Grant Imahara, the the uh, Asian gentleman I took. He was the one yeah. to do that one. And yeah, then, yeah. Um, what was his name? Tori uh, Bellagio. Tori, I, uh, I took him to see if you could jump out of an airplane 15 seconds after somebody else and catch him. And they kind of confirmed that one because Nick, who did the jump, uh, caught up to us just at pull time. Um, yeah, that's right. Which was super cool. But the, the bone that I had to pick with you was after it was all said and done. We're finished. The day's done. We got the jumps in that we didn't think we were going to do. And everybody ends up over at Doc's Place drinking at the trailer on the drop zone. Yeah. So we're having our drinks and everything. And Carrie Byron, the female Mythbuster, was there the redhead. just yeah. looking adorable. Yeah. And I was flirting up a storm. And she was flirting back. We were taking pictures and all that, and you son of a bitch made me fucking fly the pack to Davis right then. You came yeah. to me and you're like, Dean, pack's got to go over to, to air repair. What? Yeah, yeah. And and the, and I did you a favor because <laughs> the reasons you – I don't know if you even know this, but the reason she didn't jump when everybody else did yeah. is because she was She's pregnant. pregnant. Yeah, I didn't care. And she was married, and so I saved you from yourself. She actually, she wasn't even engaged quite yet. I did find out she was pregnant after oh, the fact, right. but yeah. oh my yeah. God. I got in that pack, came close to busting every limit that damn aircraft had to get it to to the, the damn shop as quick as I possibly could, cussing your fucking name every second of the way, that motherfucking son of a bitch, and then got there. Of course, nobody's there. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh, he told me Phil was going to be. Re-. And finally, I get a ride back. And of course, by the time I get back to the drop zone, it's crickets. Literally, everybody's gone. Oh, man, I cussed you out for about a month. <laughs> like that, that son of a bitch. And I think we ended up, uh, they had left Buster at the drop zone after he went in. And there's a, a picture of me having my way with Buster because I figured it was the only myth Buster I was going to get close to after that. <laughs> well,. <laughs> That was uh there was always a method to my madness. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, that was the thing is everybody always pretty much figured you knew what was going on, but it didn't necessarily mean they liked it all that much. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you, you might remember one of the rules I had was you can say anything you want to to another staff member or to management or to me, but you had to do it behind closed doors. Yep. I, I didn't allow people to air their laundry in the public. Yep. So, um so I, I had a, I, I, I nicely asked people to come see me in my office on a regular occasion. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, you got me a couple times. Uh, there was one time that uh, uh, a camera flyer, Amy, who I'm sure you remember, who worked for the FAA, um, 
yeah. had left a, a CD for me on my uh desk in the office in the hangar um, that uh, had the caption, Dean's Mad Flying Skills. And it was a series of pictures of me, beautiful exits out of the pack and all that stuff, and and uh, maybe a little bit over the top, just a little bit. And you call me uh-huh. you call me into the office and uh, sit down for a second, and I sit down, and you turn your computer around, and it's nothing but pictures of me at a slightly steeper bank angle <laughs> or slightly yeah. more aggressive descent. Yeah, yeah slightly. <laughs> slightly, just a little bit. <laughs> and you looked at me, and you went, you got the pictures? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you need to do that again? No. Cool. And you popped the disc out and handed it to me and said, have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and then uh, um towards the end and this is actually where I got to give you a ton of credit. Um right when I had decided I was going to go uh fly the otter in Chicago, um you I don't know if, if uh, uh you didn't want me going or or you were mad at uh, the guy that offered me the job or whatever, but you were mad at me for about a week or so. Uh and giving me shit for oh, what you kept calling me a short timer and telling me I was lazy. Uh, and I, yeah. and I knew I wasn't, but, oh, it was pissing me off something fierce. And so I finally stormed into your office and, and, uh, closed the door and I said, God damn it, Ray, I've been busting my ass for this long and doing this, that, and the other thing and always making sure I do my job. So stop fucking saying I'm lazy. And you looked at me and went, you know, I'm sorry about that. You're right. Have a good day. And <laughs> I was blown away cause I expected you to put up a fight and throw me the fuck out. And you just went, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> Yeah. And I thought that was well, was the coolest thing ever. I, I got I got to tell the story that that you didn't tell in your book. Oh, so oh, yeah, go ahead. So the the last day you flew for oh, me. Oh God. Uh, <laughs> I had I had we had goaded you into an okay, princess. It's your last day. You have to fly in a dress. <laughs> so you showed up in a skirt, nice little white skirt, yep. and you spent the day flying in the skirt. And a good friend of mine named Rich, who worked for the FAA, <laughs> and he was a, a, a Czech airman uh, in just about every kind of airplane in the world, from DC-3s to helicopters right. and everything in between. And he landed uh, to get fuel at our place, and he was flying a King Air 200. And I go, Rich, what are you doing this afternoon? And he says, I don't got nothing. And I said, here's what's going on. you got to come back here today because I need to bust my pilot's chops. <laughs> And uh, so he said, okay, so so he comes back. He takes the King Air back over to Sacramento. He comes back over, and um, I get on the radio. And I go, Dean, I'm taking over the next load. The FA's here, FA's here, and they want to talk to you. And he goes, you go, well, what I do? And I go, I don't know, but they're fucking pissed. <laughs> and so, so. I, I meet you at the airplane, and you jump out, and you go, what did I do? What did I do? I said, man, I don't know, but you better fix it because this is fucked up. And I hop in the airplane. You go running through the parking lot to grab your wallet to send your car, not on your person because you're wearing a skirt. And and then you go in the office, and they, and he starts looking at your looking at your wallet or at your pilot's license. He goes, let me see the medical. looks at your medical, and he's... And and you were sitting there just in a titian wearing a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, wondering what the fuck I'd done wrong. You guys left me yeah. hanging on that for a while too. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, but in the end, he was uh, he uh, I forget exactly what happened because I was flying. But but uh, before it was over with, Rich 
started breaking out to a grin, looking down at the ground because he couldn't. He was about to bust out laughing himself. Couldn't handle it anymore. And uh, so, so the, the choke was over. But but it, but you you were shitting. Bricks. Oh, you damn right I was. Well, and that whole damn day was tough too because you're right. I showed up in that extremely comfortable. By the way, for those pilots listening, flying a skirt sometime it's fucking amazing, um, especially in the summer. But uh, uh, if you remember, about halfway through that day, we got a flat fucking tire. So I ended up. Oh, that's right. I had to change the tire in a skirt. So, so I had the huge crowd around taking pictures as I'm squatting down under the pack, changing the tire in a skirt, which was another just ridiculous part of it. it well, you know, the reality is that in the early days of Skydance, uh, I'm glad GoPros weren't around. Right? <laughs> oh, man. I'll tell you what. Had social media and camera phones and all that shit been around it, 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 with this kind of prevalence back then, we'd all be screwed. Yeah. Social media and, and GoPros kind of ruined the party. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, now you always <laughs> got to look over your shoulder to see who the hell's filming because you never know what's coming. That's right. Well, well, I'll tell you what, I know we've got about a billion different stories that we can continue to go through. And I'm going to tell you right now and say it flat out. I want to make sure I get you back on here because there's so much more we can talk about and so many gritty details I want to get into on uh, on Skydance and everything. But we're going to call it quits on this one and, and uh, um, definitely leave it on a high note. But I want you to give some advice to anybody out there thinking of doing something silly like running a DZ. Um and uh, anybody that's thinking about getting into skydiving and all that stuff 30 years down the road, what, what advice do you got to give to those people? Um, everybody ought to give skydiving a try. I don't care how many hours you fly in a tunnel. It's not the same as being in free no, fall. No, it is not. Um, it's been the most amazing trip in the world for me. Like I say in my little byline is you got to be where you've been to be where you are. If you like where you are, it's been a, if you like where you are, it's been a good trip. Damn right. So, I've had a, I've had a grand trip. Uh, the skydiving industry and the skydiving community is the best in the world. Uh, I just can't say enough about it. It's just it's just awesome. Everybody needs to give it a try. If you want to run a skydiving center, get your ducks in a row, put together a little bit of a business plan, which I had never done before in my life, uh, and convince an airport that you're an asset and they want you to be there. Mm. Um, otherwise you'll spend 10 years fighting the battle. Sure. Well, I know that, uh, um, I, I just, uh, interviewed, uh, Billy and, uh, Angie Sharman, uh, not that long yeah. ago. And, uh, uh, Billy was actually just, uh, out near me not that long ago. And, and he said, uh, uh, nothing but praise to you and all the things that you've done trying to help him, uh, in getting it up and running. Cause I don't think anybody's really prepared for what's coming at them when they take on, you know, being the adult in the room when it comes to a bunch of skydivers. Yeah, that's a fact, and and certainly, uh, as you know, I I watched Billy grow up for sure. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. Yeah, from from all the silliness that he did to getting tossed off the drop zone to now running his own operation where they're getting ready to have, uh, you know, national championships and all this stuff. It's pretty fantastic, and it's pretty pretty great. Pretty great. It really yeah. is, and and uh, it's it's hats off to to guys like you that have done it when it was a lot harder to do because we've gotten to learn from all the hard fought lessons that you had to learn, and it gets a little bit easier because. Uh, looking back, especially, you know, when you're in the middle of it all, you can't figure out why the DZO is always pissed off and ornery and this and that. And now I look at the DZOs and go, how the fuck is that guy smiling? I'd kill somebody. 
you know, so I think it takes a special kind of psychotic son of a bitch to want to, to run a drop zone and, and man, you ran one for a long time and did it quite well. Well, and the other thing you want to keep in mind is that, uh, uh, if you run it easier, don't take anything personal because if you do, you'll hate everyone. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> but no, it's a, it's all, it's been a grand run. I, I, I can't complain. Life is good. And, uh, I don't think I changed much of anything. It's been a great run. Oh, that's so. fantastic. Well, I mean, and it's been a great fun catching up with you. I'd love to, I'd love to do it again. Oh, we're definitely going to do it again. Cause there's just too damn many stories that I know we haven't touched on. Uh, you know, like I said it before and, and I'll say it again. The, the fact of the matter is you put me in a plane, uh, literally as, as soon as I had my commercial license, you had me in your 182. As soon as I hit a thousand hours, I was flying a turbine and none of the stuff that I've been able to do in the quite a few years since then would have happened had you not given given me the opportunity. And if I haven't said thank you before, I'm going to say it now, Ray, it's been an amazing ride and I can thank you for it. I'm proud to see what you've done with it as well. It's been pretty awesome. Ray, so good catching up with you, man. I can't, I'm just, I'm real thankful you took the time and I hope uh, everybody learned some good lessons and we'll do it again soon. Sounds great. All right, Ray, thank you so much. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, Check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. Go to FlyawayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.